Hello, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 162 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And our episode today is a discussion with Jessica Sanderson from the Volkoff Law Group on how to conduct a remote third-party audit. Welcome, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well um, and uh, staying safe and healthy. Uh, before we get started in this uh, interesting interview, uh, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance Solutions. Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steel's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steel's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management, Investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's Compliance Solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Well, I want to welcome Jessica Sanderson uh, today to our podcast. Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Jessica is a partner at the Volkoff Law Group. I don't know that law firm, but I hear they're pretty good. Uh, Jessica has an extensive background in compliance issues. She worked at Gibson Dunn. She worked on the at the Siemens FCPA monitorship and then for years uh, was in-house at a chemicals company based in Denver, Colorado, and uh, then joined the Volkoff Law Group, and we're very lucky to have her. Um, she's done, uh, and while here and in, in, in previous work, she's also uh, conducted third-party audits uh, and has done so for uh, clients, including uh, remote audits uh, because of uh, COVID-19 concerns. Uh, and Jessica, can you sort of just to set the issue or frame the issue, just describe some of the challenges you faced when uh, conducting a remote audit? And obviously, these audits often involve high risk third parties. So the stakes are pretty high, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and just to step back for a minute for a bit of background. Um, you know, I think everyone listening to this podcast probably understands the importance of third party due diligence and having contractual protections, which at this point is fairly standard to have audit rights. 
Um, and, you know, the question is when and if so, you know, under what circumstances would companies start to exercise those audit rights and perform what we're focusing on today, which are the third party audits. Um, you know, the regulators are focused on this. You know, they published in July 2020, the DOJ and SEC came out with their updated resources guide. And it still, you know, it still provides as one of the basic tenets of third party due diligence that there's got to be some form of ongoing monitoring of third party relationships and where appropriate, it should include exercising audit rights. Um, so, so that's kind of where we are in terms of background. Those, those audit rights that we have are, are essentially meaningless if they're never exercised. Um, so then you get to, you know, how do we select our third parties for audits? For most companies, um, exercising audit rights on every third party is just simply not going to be practical or affordable. And, and I don't believe, frankly, that it's necessary, nor do I think the regulators would think it's necessary. And I think what they would expect um, and what we would counsel our clients is that, as with every other area of compliance, you, you know, companies should adopt a risk-based approach to exercising those audit rights. And you know, we're, we're talking specifically today also in terms of COVID, and certainly that would be one of the factors that we would look into in exercising the audit rights. How, you know, what, what is the country, for example, where the third party is operating in, what does that country look like right now in terms of um, the shutdown of the economy, access to the office, access to documents, um, generally the volume of business may change, you know, um, we're all in these unprecedented times, don't really know. So, so that's certainly going to be one major factor that we wouldn't necessarily always have. Um, the other factors that, you know, companies should take a look at would be, I would certainly recommend that if we're going to exercise an audit right on a third party, it should be a third party with whom the company expects to have a continuing relationship, a long-term relationship. It wouldn't necessarily make sense to spend resources on third parties that uh, the business may not be committed to working with long-term. Um, maybe there's a third party that the company's about to significantly increase the volume of business with them or expand their territory or expand their customer base, um, you know, especially if those customers are going to be government customers, uh, especially if perhaps there's some public tender process that the company expects a third party will become engaged in. Um, those could be factors to take into account. Um, obviously, we'd recommend a, a high-risk third party over a lower-risk third party, and all the typical high-risk factors would come into play, such as the degree of their interaction with foreign government officials, whether the third party has close ties to government officials, whether they operate in high-risk countries, um, the same types of, of risk factors that we would look at in the due diligence. Um, another factor may be, you know, maybe the third party is a relatively unknown entity. A lot of times companies um, in certain countries may work with smaller privately held third parties, maybe their uh, family held businesses or not many employees. I mean, those are obviously going to be a higher risk than, for example, public companies that would already have external auditors and might be working with other principals. Um, maybe the third party, when I said is relatively unknown, they're not recommended by someone that the company already knows and trusts and works with. Um, and then the other thing, too, I always say and always recommend that the compliance and legal professionals in-house have to consult with the business and get their opinions. Uh, maybe they have suspicions or gut feelings that the third party doesn't fully understand the company's policies, um, and it might be worth a, a deeper dive in terms of an audit. Um, 
And then, you know, as we get into the audit itself, we're going to want to work with the business and the, the company to define the scope of the audit, including the relevant time period. Maybe you limit it to the current contract term, um, specific customers or territory. Again, it, it depends on the size of the third party and the third party's operations uh, and sales, sales panels and, and, you know, the function that it's performing for the company, the government touch points. And so again, consult with the business and make sure that um, we fully understand all of that before jumping into the audit. And you know, another thing that's really important to, is to understand the difference between an audit and an investigation. I mean, assuming that we're not exercising audit rights because we have a, a suspicion of, of fraudulent conduct, then it truly is an evaluation or an audit. It should be a much more collaborative approach uh, you'll want to be as unobtrusive and efficient as possible. It's certainly, although the contract has audit rights, when you exercise that, uh, it's certainly going to be, um, you know, an imposition at a minimum on the third party and not something that they're generally accustomed to. And so it's always best to adopt a non-confrontational approach. Um, and, and, you know, the, the purpose is quite different, again, than an investigation. If, if you do not suspect wrongdoing, the goal is really to identify the government touch points that your third party might have to make sure, you know, assume, you know, this is, I'm focusing on FCPA risks and, and bribery risks. Obviously, there may be sanctions concerns and antitrust concerns. Uh, and whatever the concerns may be, that's where you'll want to focus to identify where the risk areas are for the third party, much as you would do for your own company in a risk assessment. Um, and then make sure that your company has sufficient visibility into those touch points um, and, and interactions that are greater risk. Make sure that your company knows what the third party is doing in terms of representing you in those areas. Um, you'll want to make sure the third party understands and is complying with the company policies uh, as well as applicable laws and, and generally just make sure that the third party demonstrates a commitment to following this, the same policies and laws that, that your company would follow. Um, so and again, Jessica, yeah, the, you know, the, you've laid out a lot of, I mean, to me, these are the real significant issues in deciding where to go and then uh, you know, planning and sort of strategy. Um, you know, in 2012, I think it was in the Pfizer resolution for FCPA, an FCPA case, uh, they made a big deal and the department made a big deal in the settlement on their commitment to conduct five audits each year of high risk um, third parties. So, you know, they set up a formula for that and they would do five a year. Um, in general, uh, you know, that seems kind of high to me, but I don't know in when you're doing a remote audit, whether it's, you know, more doable because there's not travel and expensive travel and things like that. But what's, you know, w what do you see in terms of are people sort of saying they're going to have a certain number each year or they how do they come up with sort of how many to do or how much resources to devote to that? What, what do you see amongst companies? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, it's it's the companies that have a fairly mature compliance program in the first place that are conducting the third party audits. Um, you know, I, I think it makes sense logically that companies that are still working on creating their own compliance program aren't really focused yet on third party audits. 
Um, but certainly, you know, in an ideal world and to have the, the best, most thorough third party audit you can conduct, a, a site visit in person would be preferable. Uh, but you could certainly justify an approach where you conduct a few remote audits during the year and perhaps you can accommodate more remote audits than you could if you had to visit in person. Um, but again, it depends on the company and the size of the company and their risks. You know, some companies choose to do one a quarter or two a year. You know, it, de it depends on the reliance on third parties. If companies have hundreds of third parties, uh, you know, some type of sampling is obviously going to be required. You know, it, are they entirely reliant on one or two third parties in certain areas of the world? It, it really does. What From what I've seen, I can't point to any standard number of right. third party audits that, that I've seen, nor have I seen really a recommendation from the regulators, either in the UK or the US um, or other countries that, that I've taken a look at. You know, even you mentioned the Pfizer, but I, I'm not aware of, and maybe you are, any, you know, plea agreements or, or agreements to have a monitor that specifically require third-party audits like that. Um, yeah, no, that's the only case that I've ever seen it in, but, yeah. and, and it was 2012 and, you know, sort of, a, you know, several years back and, um, and I think it never got incorporated into any sort of mandatory requirement. All I know is that Pfizer made that representation and it became part of their settlement agreement. But, um, you know, I don't I've never seen any sort of specific recommendation uh, or, or requirement. But, you know, you also use some terminology, which is, uh, you know, on a quarterly basis, you may do one each quarter, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Uh, I also think it, you know, you got to look at the risk ranking factors. Uh, you, who knows what your third party risk profile looks like and companies differ in that. And um, but whatever is done to me, it should involve what you would consider. You know, I would consider, I think, a high risk operation. I mean, I wouldn't go to a low risk and audit somebody. Uh, I just think with the resources being limited, you, you, it should be, you know, at your higher risk and and company profiles vary significantly, you know, in that basis. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. I mean, you know, this is this is not, uh, you know, this is what I would see as being done after you've already conducted due diligence and you have an existing third party and you know right. the profile. So. You know, if it's a low risk third party, you've already done the due diligence, which should be sufficient and different types of ongoing monitoring should suffice, you know, annual certifications or training or just generally having your business be focused and, and monitoring the third party. If they're low risk should be sufficient. Um, but, you know, so, when it's high risk, you may want, you know, this is this is really the I would say it's a deeper dive and possibly the deepest dive. Um, that right. one could do on a completely unrelated third party. Right, um, right. Yeah. In yeah. terms of, uh, and I know we, we've we worked a lot with forensic accountants. We've worked, uh, for example, with Baker Tilly, uh, Jonathan Marks's team over at Baker Tilly. And you will, you include, it, let's say it's you and somebody from Baker Tilly. What is the, and and how do you, what's the purpose of, let's say having a forensic accountant and how do you work with them? 
are they part of the entire project with you? Do they attend interviews? Do they attend meetings, you know, remotely? How, what, what kind of role do they play with you? Yeah, I mean, so I should mention if it's if it's possible and practical, then it's certainly my preferred method would be to team up with a forensic auditor like a Baker Tilly um, or we've worked with Ancora and others. Um, and it's it's generally the best way, I think, to approach the audit because they tend to be the experts in identifying high risk financial transactions and testing the adequacy of the financial controls. I mean, obviously I can do that, you can do that, we're capable of it, but to really get down into, you know, the company's general ledger and their expense accounts and to help select samples for actual testing, um, you know, that is preferable because also you could make the audit, the whole audit itself, much more efficient and, and faster, frankly, if you have the forensic accountant focusing on the sample financial transaction testing, um, and then we as the attorneys could focus on essentially the rest of the audit, testing their compliance with the law, their understanding of the applicable laws, their understanding of policy, conducting the interviews. Um, you mentioned interviews also. Um, you know, I would prefer to have them on together on the interviews as well, especially if you're at the point of the audit where you've selected sample financial transactions and you have questions about them. Perhaps, you know, often I will find that a company just lacks supporting documentation, which doesn't necessarily indicate fraud, but suggests that we've got to go further and ask questions and ask what certain expenditures were for, for example. And that can only be done during interviews. Um, and, and again, so if we're together with the forensic auditor, that's always helpful. And with, with the meetings remotely, I mean, it, it has been, you know, relatively straightforward to set up Zoom meetings and, and conferences and have everybody participate, even if they're in different locations. Right, right. So that makes sense. So let's, so let's go back now. So we're getting started. And uh, the first step, uh, like many projects, is to get some documents or some, you know, you establish a relationship with the third party, you're introduced, you're whatever, and you start to create a relationship with them. And uh, you start with documents. And what what kind of documents or what are key documents to you in when you're doing the audit? Right. So, I mean, you know, you mentioned the introduction. That, that's really important, I think, to have as smooth of an introduction as possible from the people in the business that they're used to working with, um, explaining why they're bringing in this third party to conduct the audit. And then, um, you know, I always would start with the documents that the client, that the company itself has related to the third party. So all the due diligence files and anything that they may have on the third party, which helps then, you know, shape the, the document request. Um, and, you know, again, performing this remotely, it, it really does depend a lot on the sophistication of the third party, at, you know, their record keeping skills. Do they have all their financial and other information in electronic form already in a form that um, can easily be extracted? Or do they tend to have a lot of hard copy documents? Are they, you know, are they well organized? And again, you know, it, it, that depends on the size and sophistication of the company. And certainly during COVID, a lot of employees do not have access to their office to get hard copy documents. So that can, that can you know, ex certainly extend the time and um, difficulty of obtaining the information that, that we want to get. 
Um, you know, but I've, I have found, I, I just finished performing a third party audit in Mexico and it did take longer than, than we anticipated, but we were eventually able to get sufficient documentation. Um, and so, you know, in terms of the documents that, you know, the actual documents that you would want, you know, you, you want to start with organization charts and employee lists and make sure that you can identify who at the third party is actually servicing your client's account and who at the third party is actually the, the individual or individuals that are interacting with government officials. Um, it helps you, you know, again, understand the operations and certainly to identify the people that you'll want to have interviews with. Um, definitely want to identify who their accountant or financial controller is, whether it's internal or external, and then work with them uh, to get access to the company's financial statements. You want to identify all bank accounts. And, you know, again, if it's a small family held business, sometimes you even have to go to the level of personal bank accounts if you discover that they're commingling, um, you know, personal and business finances, which which we have seen uh, in many countries around the world. Um, so you'll want to identify the bank accounts and any company credit cards. Um, you know, in different countries, they may have different accounting rules and they may refer to things differently, have different descriptions for documents. But you basically want a general ledger or some type of chart of accounts or, or listing of all of their accounts and all of their, you know, where they're recording all of their expenses, how they're describing them. So you can take a look at those, um, you know, ideally get unaudited financial statements and, and see how they're accounting for, you know, all of the money that's coming into the company and all of the money that's going out of the company. And we'll want to understand, sometimes you can't get to this until the interview stage, but you'll want to understand their use of cash as well. Um, if it's if it's a company that's that's paying um, their third parties in cash. Um, and obviously, you know, to the extent that the third party has any of its own compliance policies or travel and expense policies or code of conduct, training records, anything like that, you'll want to obtain. If the third party is being paid on commissions, then you'll want to make sure you get all of the underlying documents there in terms of the calculation of the commissions, um, invoices or bills. Uh, if the third party itself has significant contracts with other third parties, you'll want to get a copy of those contracts, um, you know, and so that you can review them for anti-corruption clauses. And so that also when you look at the financial transactions, you can see if they line up with the contract and what the, the rate of pay, for example, that's called for in the contract. And then I always ask if they have any internal audit reports or investigation reports or or hotline records, um, you know, again, this is going to greatly depend on the sophistication of the third party, but to the extent that they've done any internal compliance assessments, it's very helpful to have that. Um, and then I will, you know, typically look at, again, depending on the size of the third party, if it's not that large, you could look at, you could request all exp employee expense reports for a certain period of time. Um, clearly, if they have a significant number of employees, you're not going to want to request all of the expense reports. So you'll do some sampling or hopefully you've identified who the key employees are in terms of government interactions and servicing your account. And you can just request their employee expense reports. Um, you know, on the subject of documents, and I know I'm not letting you get a word in here, Mike. Sorry. No, but... <laughs> no, no, no. This is we're trying to help people to <laughs> how to do this. I, I only get in the way. So go ahead. <laughs> but, um, you know, one thing that has come up for me is sometimes a, a third party will legitimately resist um, producing some of their 
you know, sensitive information, financial information, otherwise confidential information. Um, some distributors are reluctant to just dis to disclose, say, customer lists or customer contracts, especially if it's it's a non-exclusive agreement in the sense that the company reserves the right in their third-party agreement to to sell directly. Um, so they may be very sensitive about those things. So what I have done is um, offer to and actually enter into a, some type of non-disclosure agreement with the third party. Um, and as long as it's carefully structured so that they understand, you know, that your your obligation, your responsibility is to your client, not them, to the company that's hired you to do the third party audit and, and that you need to share findings and recommendations and certain information with your client. Um, but I do think you could limit it and restrict it so that you're not sharing the actual documents, for example, that you receive from from the from the third party and other sensitive information. You could, um, you know, you can come to an agreement as to whether you actually disclose a customer's name or not. And again, this is all very company and industry dependent because, you know, oftentimes the company will know all of the customers that the distributor sells to if it's a, a specific product or service they're going they're going to know the ultimate end user anyway um but but things can come up and you can't really assume that if a third party doesn't want to produce confidential information that they're they're being resistant or that they have something to hide i mean they may have a legitimate concern that that i've found at least you can take care of with an nda yeah I mean, that's a great piece of advice because I think that there's always tension in that area, particularly with distributors who think if you learn a customer, it depends if it's like a um, like a fungible good you sell. Let's say you sell washing machines. You're afraid that the manufacturer will go straight to the customer and cut out the distributor. So I could see that coming exactly. up. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes, uh, you know, you may be dealing with a third party that deals with, you know, uh, say Pemex or Petavasa or, well, not Petavasa these days, but you know, <laughs> hopefully, you know, not. <laughs> uh, hopefully not. Yeah. So <laughs> let's turn to interviews. And I think this is a, an interesting topic because, you know, the, it's a non-adversarial approach, you know, because you want to get information. Uh, and it's not like we're doing an internal investigation where we think something happened and we have to pursue all leads related to it. So, you know, what's your approach to interviews of representatives and how do you sort of, um, you know, reduce the pressure of the situation? And then, and then what kind of topics do you cover? You know, what are some of the issues that you, you look at? And obviously, it'll depend. There could be, a, you know, an interview of a financial person is going to be different than an interview of a salesperson. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, I definitely adopt a non-confrontational approach, and I, you know, I obviously agree to that in advance with my client. Um, and so I try to make the interviews more of a conversation or discussion, um, and not an interrogation. Uh, you know, you're really trying to just sort of test the interviewee's knowledge of your company's policies and the applicable laws. And again, whether you're dealing with bribery laws or antitrust laws or sanctions laws, um, oftentimes I will present hypotheticals. I think that's a good way of, of dealing with them or in, and trying to find out what, what in fact they, they understand. So, you know, what would you do if, say, for example, a customs official refused to release a container of product 
and you know started demanding that they needed some some samples of the goods to make sure that they could release them you know which is really sort of an you know back backhanded way of saying you know i want free samples or you know if they you know the obvious one is is demanding payment i think we see that actual demand for cash less and less but it still happens um, or, you know, what would you do if a government official were to offer to share with you some technical requirements in advance of the bidding process, you know, which would give you an advantage um, for some type of price, you know, whether it, it, an employment of their relative, for example, their son needs a job, um, you know, just present a lot of the classic sort of bribery scenarios and ask them what they do and, and test whether they understand, you know, what 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 issues does that raise and also how would they respond and i'm always looking for you know would they disclose this to your company what do they know about their hotline for example or do they have a significant you know a, a, a relationship where they're comfortable calling the company so that they feel comfortable refusing um whether it's a, a bribe or facilitation process whatever it is um if there's open lines of dialogue um you know hypotheticals are one thing. I mean, I would certainly always ask whether there's been any actual issues that have come up, again, and depending on whether it's antitrust or anti-corruption, but, you know, do they attend trade shows where they exchange information with competitors? Um, have they ever been, you know, confronted with an improper request or were they ever tempted to engage in conduct and, and what happened? And obviously for all of the case studies, and hypotheticals and actuals, you wanna make sure you understand their business beforehand so that it's not something that's just so out of this world that they wouldn't even know how to answer it. Um, you what know, do you I do? What, one thing, Jessica, that I think comes up a lot with third parties is they're, they're never gonna be keeping, uh, most, most times, you know, there's certain businesses where a third party may be just as sophisticated as our client, but, you know, oftentimes you're going to run into situations where they're a smaller business or a family business. And then what happens when they don't have the documentation or they don't keep records like, you know, we would want them to do? And how do you, you know, how do you get at that issue? And then does the scope or the nature of your questioning change because then you don't have documentation to verify certain things? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does change and because you need you need their oral explanation, frankly, for any anything that's lacking a written document. Um, right. And you're, this, this most often happens in small family held companies. You know, I have more than once heard this the refrain that, you know, we're a family. We trust each other. We don't we don't need internal controls. We don't need segregations of duties. You know, and that may be a perfectly acceptable way for them to conduct business, but then it's very difficult to provide your client with any sort of assurances or, you know, ability to test what they're telling you. Um, you know, so oftentimes I will try to make clear to the client in advance and certainly in the report that unless, unless we have evidence to doubt what someone's telling us in an interview, mm -hmm. we will accept what they're saying is true. So, I mean, I, again, that, that's why this is, and I want to make clear again, it's very different from an investigation. Um, here, because it's not an investigation, um, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, um, but we're obviously not going to close, close our eyes, you know, if there's a document that contradicts what they're saying, or if two different interviewees give us a different explanation, 
um, then we're certainly going to probe further. But otherwise, we're going to accept what they what they tell us. And, and obviously, you know, note that. And, you know, I this is another approach that I should talk about. But I also view the third party audit as a little bit of an opportunity to train the third party as well. And oh, that's to, a good point. Yeah, that's yeah, a really good point. You know, to explain to them that, you know, it may be perfectly acceptable for them to conduct their business in this way and it's worked for them for years. But, you know, given this situation and the client's expectations and the compliance policies, they they need to insist on some documentation or they need to insist on some segregation of duties so that they have some way to verify um, that that you're conducting business in a proper manner and, and in a way that um, obviously is not going to cause them any trouble. And, and so I, I frequently do kind of, you know, it goes back to the discussion and the conversation. You know, if, if they're not keeping documents or, or, you know, for example, have lax internal controls and the company expects that of them, you know, then I will explain that to them. And, you know, oftentimes they will start even changing and sort of implementing some of what would be the recommendations as we go along. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I think that's really the goal. I mean, obviously you're there because the company would like to continue to do business with them and want some additional reassurance that um, that they are a company that they can rely on to conduct ethical and lawful business. And so if you can make it a, a two-way street and help them strengthen their compliance program, you know, in the course of the third party audit, it just makes things easier on the back end, because ultimately, you know, the goal of this would be for the, for the company that's hired you to perform the third party audit to, um, if necessary, implement some, you know, mitigation measures or ask the third party to, to change in some ways its conduct um, to make it a, you know, a stronger, more ethical company to do business. Well, let's uh, we're getting towards the end. So I want to make sure we cover one last issue. And I know it's a big issue, but on, and you've already referenced it earlier. And that is um, uh, the financial issues and working with the forensic uh, person, your partner in this. Um, you know, what do you do? How do you get into testing transactions? What, you know, what kind of sampling strategies to do you work you know do you do and and uh obviously if things come up here this can you know if you see some real serious red flags that can lead to you know real concerns so oh yeah um i mean so generally in third party audits i will do a sample selection of of financial transactions um, you know especially if we're talking about bribery anti-bribery corruption um type of third party audit, then we got to focus on the money, right? I mean, people pay bribes with money going out of their company. Most don't, most don't do it with their personal funds. Um, right. So the first step is going to be to look at what I was saying. Some companies describe it differently, but the general ledger or the chart of accounts, some type, some type of description of the accounts that they maintain. And I certainly focus more on expenses, the money that's going out of the third party than the revenue, the money that might be coming in. Um, so within those categories, then in terms of, you know, how many samples are we going to select? Right. I mean, if you've got right. a year time period, it could be, you know, an incredible number of, of financial transactions. So, you know, one thing I like to mention, I, I did a lot of work in my 
in my litigation days with with uh, damages experts and statistical experts. And you know, this is not a random sample, and it does not have to be st statistically significant. Okay, it is purposefully. Right. It's not a scientific experiment, and it's purposefully not random. I mean, you want to actually choose higher risk transactions and transactions that could you know, be used to describe bribery. Um, and again, you know, this is where forensic accountants are also incredibly helpful. Um, but generally, you know, whether it's them or us or, or a combination of us, you know, we're gonna look at the tra bank transactions, we'll look at payroll and bonuses, um, any types of commissions, discounts, rebates. Um, you know, again, in the FCPA world, we're gonna look at meals and gifts and travel and entertainment. Um, you know, and hopefully they're they're describing them as such in their books and records. I mean, sometimes we just look at at expenses that don't have a good description or don't make sense because you right. want to see if they're if they're hiding something else. Um, any kind of financial transactions that might indicate a potential government touch point, um, like customs expenses or political contributions, lobbying expenses, licenses, permits, taxes. Um, you know, and then we always will look at, you know, freight and customs as well. Um, but really any type of, you know, there, there are sort of what I would call best practices for a compliance audit. And, and these are the types of expenditures we're going to look at. Um, the ones I mentioned and, you know, charitable contributions, whatever. So, you know, once you've kind of identified those transactions, right, you're still going to have a huge universe of financial transactions. So within that, then we search for um, anomalies or irregularities, you know, what I refer to as the, the red flags. And that may be things like the payment methods. So if they're using cash or cash advances or credit memos, um, we'll look at, you know, maybe duplicate or split invoices or payments. Um, sometimes that's used, you know, if there's a if there's a approval threshold, um, people will use those to get under the approval threshold. Um, and certainly if there's multiple payments in a short period of time to the same third party. Um, and again, at this point, I'm saying the third parties of your third party, um, right. you know, payments to offshore bank accounts, payments to a bank account that might be in the name of a different vendor. Um, large payments made near the date of contract termination or sometimes even after contract termination. Certainly we're always looking at round dollar payments. Um, sometimes they'll have duplicate vendors or suppliers, so they'll have the same name, but at many different addresses. Um, you know, I think that I'm sure that I'm missing some in discussing this, but there are there are certain red flags that that we'll certainly look at. And then among those, um, hopefully we can start to narrow down the selection and, and come up with a number that, you know, can give you um, reasonable assurances is really what I come back to. And again, you know, it, it's, not, it's not plausible or practicable to review every single one of their financial transactions. So you do have to have sort of a, a keen eye on, on picking enough of them. And but then you also get, once you identify them, you will ask for uh, the documentation underlying that transaction. And that's, to me, where the rubber meets the road in terms of testing the transaction and seeing, you know, does it match up to the way the transaction was entered into the books? You know what I mean? Is that what, 
what you do, yeah, you ultimately I mean, pull that documentation, right? Yeah. So, I mean, in, ter in terms of the documentation that we request, and we talked about this, there, there's almost always going to be at least two significant document requests, right? There's the one up front. Um, right. And from that, then you're going to select your sample financial transactions. And then there will most certainly be a second request for all of the supporting documents for the samples that you selected. So if you select, you know, you just pick a number of 50 samples, um, you're going to want all of the invoices and all of the purchase orders and all of the contracts and whatever else there may be to support those transactions that you've requested. Um, and, then, and, then, and then there, but then then Jessica is when you start to see you're verifying various things, but you know nobody ever can. I mean, it's rare to see anybody come back with 50 transactions perfectly documented. And then the question is, what are you, what are you starting to see, or are you looking at just something that wasn't completed, or is it real more serious than that? Yeah, I mean, sometimes to me, again, depending on the third party. The lack of documentation is less concerning than if I start to see conflicting documentation. So if you okay. see, for example, okay. invoices that have a certain price and that price is not the same price that's in the contract. Um, well, that's you know, a red that, flag. That's a right, red flag. That's a red flag. Those things are more concerning. A lack of documentation, um, you know, if it's across the board, if not a single sample has documentation, that, that could be an issue. Um, yeah. But again, depending on the third party, I would expect a certain lack of documentation. Um, so when but, you, you know, get or, to the, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. I was just going to say, you know, the other things that are more concerning would be is if the expense is recorded in the books and records is one thing, but then the underlying supporting documentation shows that it's something else. Um, right. You know, th th those are the types of things to me that are, that would be more concerning than just, we don't have the, we don't have the backup. We just didn't keep it. We Right. So then you get to the end point here. And do most clients in the at the end of this request a written summary uh, and obviously under privilege since you're a lawyer and uh, and you hire the forensic auditor to keep their work under privilege for you? Um, do most people request a written report with recommendations? Uh, you know, findings and recommendations, or do most people uh, want just a quick summary? What do you, what do you find that uh, companies are interested in on these audits when you get to the end? Yeah, I mean, from from my experience, most companies want a written report with findings and recommendations. Um, but one thing I will note on that, and again, this is my practice, I will always talk to the company first and talk through some of the findings and what I think the recommendations may be so that we can make sure that they are recommendations that the company can live with. Um, because we may have an end goal, but there's different ways to get to that goal. And so I definitely want to, again, consult with the company and the business to make sure that we're, you know, if we ask them to monitor, for example, you know, what what how frequent can that monitoring be do they have the staff or resources to 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 go in for example and monitor every quarter or do they just have one compliance professional and they really need to do it on an annual basis or you know what what can we live with what will satisfy what needs to be done and oftentimes there's different ways to accomplish that so i don't typically just write up a report and say here it is here's what you need to do it's um, a collaborative it's a collaborative it's, approach is what you're saying yeah yeah 
And yeah. I even do that to a certain extent with the third party. When I mentioned earlier that I view it a little bit as training, you know, if we get into a discussion in an area where it's it's really clear that they're not, um, you know, following the company's policy or they're not documenting things appropriately, I'll start to talk to them about, you know, I'll ask them, well, how do you think you might improve this and how could you do this in a way that works for your company? And, you know, it, it, is it possible, to, for example, to implement segregation of duties? Do you have enough employees that you trust? And, and really make sure I'm sort of collaborating with everyone because, you know, the end goal, again, is to have a really reliable and ethical company that you can do business with and trust. Well, Jessica, this has been great. By the way, if people want to get in touch with you, your email address is uh, to Jay, talk about anything. Yeah, jsanderson at vocablaw.com. Um, you can also okay. go to our, our website where we've got our firm's bios and we've got a great blog and other you know webcasts and articles. So I encourage everyone to go visit. Okay, well, great, Jessica. This has been terrific. Thank you for your expertise in this area. You're absolutely, because I know I've seen the work that you produce. It's really pretty amazing. And uh, uh, if there's anybody that knows this field, it's definitely you. So thanks again. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com. It's not sane. It's not sane.